Professor Mortimer Sellers is Regents Professor of the University System of Maryland and Director of the University of Baltimore Center for International and Comparative Law. He holds an A.B. and J.D. from Harvard University and a B.C.L. and D.Phil. from Oxford and is past president of the International Association for the Philosophy of Law and Social Philosophy. He has written many books, including American Republicanism, Republican Legal Theory, and Republican Principles in International Law. We discussed Roman Republicanism. Thank you for joining us, Professor Schellers. It's a pleasure to meet you. So in the United States, I think the most popular definition of republicanism or of a republic is government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's President Lincoln's definition. Would Romans have agreed with this definition of republicanism? Well, probably... At the heart of it, they would. I mean, the, the, the fundamental central element of a republic is that it is uh, for the people, res publica, the public thing, the thing that the people own, the thing that's for the benefit of the people. So that's so I think that is the essential um, definition. Cicero said res publica, res est populi. <laughs> uh, a republic uh, is the thing that belongs to the people. But um, there was a lot more to it than that, because it's not just that it belongs to the people, but it should be for the benefit of the people. And figuring out what's for the benefit of the people can be rather complicated. So the Roman conception of the Republic got much more elaborate than simply the central concept, which is that it's for the benefit of the people. And I think the same is true of our American conception of the Republic. Uh, it's not just that it's for the people, but there are there's some some element to figure out what actually would help the people and what structure of government would bring about a society uh, which is just and for the benefit of everybody. That's interesting because I think we think of a republic as um, sort of the sort of a quasi democratic uh, thing with you know a Congress or or a body of uh, legislators and maybe an executive and. Based on what you just said, it sounds like it could be much more flexible of a concept. It's more so the telos of government um, that uh, defines republicanism rather than the structure and the inner workings. Yes, in a sense. But um, so you have Republican government, you know, two core, which is republic, you know, government for the public good. That would be. Republican government, but an awful lot of conversation going back to Cicero and ever since, and actually Plato and Aristotle before Cicero would would be trying to figure out what is the best Republican form of government. So I think uh, as long as there's been a concept of, of the Republic, there's been an effort to construct a constitution that would get us a Republic. So this question of the Republican form of government is really important. And I think any polity that doesn't involve the people in some way in the government uh, would not, it would not be easy to call that a republic. Um, but, you know, the, the, the best republic in Britain, uh, at least according to the British, in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries was uh, Britain, <laughs> uh, which had a king. And they said, we're, we're the best republic in the world uh, with a king at the head of it. So there, there's some flexibility in the concept. 
but I think if you don't have at least some kind of parliament, it would be hard to call it a republic. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned, speaking of parliament, and you mentioned the involvement of the people in Republican form of government. Can you describe, can you discuss who the people were in the Roman Republic, um, who were able to participate in the government, who was the people that this government was set up for? Well, the people uh, means the citizens in Rome. So the people of Rome were the citizens of Rome. And that's all the citizens. Uh, if you go to Rome, you'll see still on street corners, SPQR, Senatus Populusque Romanus. And the set, that means the Senate and the people of Rome. So you had the people, but you also had this narrower group, the Senate, which had a great deal of authority and was extremely uh, powerful and influential. Um, so uh, the people are an essential element in Republican government, but you have these other elements too, like for example, the Senate. And there were people in Rome who weren't citizens. But, but the story of Rome is the story of an ever expanding citizenry. And that's also true of the United States. When the United States uh, was founded, there were a lot of people who were excluded from government. And the history of the United States as of Rome is the history of realizing that more and more people should be included and, and should have all the rights that, that citizens have. That's helpful, thanks. Um, so maybe we can shift gears a little bit here now that we have these definitional concepts on the uh, laid out here and start talking about where the Roman Republic came from. And I'd like to approach this in two ways, first historically and then theoretically. Can you discuss as a historical matter uh, how the Roman Republic was formed from what it was formed and maybe why that might matter? Sure. Um, but since we're sort of doing whatever we want, let me go back even further um, to uh, human nature and right and wrong and the fundamentals of government. I, I think it really is true that no government is uh, just uh, that doesn't serve the public welfare, which is to say the welfare of everybody subject to its rule. I think it's obvious to all human beings that that's the case. If you are subject to a government that is not ruling at all in your interest, if you're in fact oppressed by government, uh, you resent it. And that's true in every polity everywhere in the world. And in fact, uh, if you're being oppressed by government, you should consider revolution. So that's that's always in the back of anyone's mind. Uh, it's also true that there have been, since the beginning of humanity, uh, many, many uh, governments which were not just. Perhaps most governments have been run primarily for the benefit of wh whoever had power. And that's how it was in Rome, as it was in many other places. So Rome was run by kings. The kings were actually foreign from the standpoint of Romans. In other words, the Romans were Latin-speaking people uh, from Latium, and they were ruled by kings who came from, who were Etruscans and spoke a different language and had a different culture. So it's not surprising, the two cultures sort of merged, but it's not surprising that there was some tension between the kings who were running in their own private interest, running the government for their own benefit, and the, the Roman people who uh, resented it. And the beginning of the Ro Roman Republic begins at the moment when the people rise up against the kings. And this was far enough ago so that the moment is a little bit mythical. <laughs> so we can't be sure that the story that's told is exactly as it happened. But the story that's told is that the king um, 
uh, want, I mean, essentially raped uh, a woman. And uh, that's the, uh, I mean, he threatened her with various things. And she uh, felt that she had been overcome by force, oppressed. And so the story is, and, and that's sort of the most, you know, very extreme example of oppression is when people take your body uh, and that, and the Roman Romans remembered it that way. So she went out in the public square and said, I am oppressed, uh, avenge me and killed herself. <laughs> and so her father and others led a revolution and ousted the king. So the story of the end of the, of the monarchy is the story of oppression. And the story of the uh, Republic is the story of the beginning of freedom. When the people said, you have to respect everybody, the people who are running the state cannot uh, force their will on anybody. And uh, the example of, of, of this original rape of a woman called Lucretia uh, is the story of, of why they threw away the kings, why they overcame the kings and instituted a new politics where there were no kings, but rather elected uh, magistrates. And not only elected magistrates, but the primary executive office was divided between two people who served for only one year. So the idea was no one would have solitary power. No one would have enough power to rule in their own will. Uh, you'd set up a state where there were checks and balances and uh, magistrates would be controlled by other magistrates and nobody would have the power to oppress the people. So that's the I ideal of the Roman Republic. And the Romans, uh, the Roman historians, uh, Livy and Tacitus looked back and said, that moment was the beginning of liberty. The moment when the kings were removed is the moment when liberty began in Rome. And liberty uh, is a Roman word, libertas. So we, the French, anyone who speaks of liberty, uh, we're evoking uh, this Roman concept, which means life without a master. To be a full citizen is to have liberty. To be a free and equal citizen with other citizens is to have liberty. Or at least that was the Roman conception of it. That's quite interesting. It's it's interesting to hear sort of a, a founding story like that. Um, whether or not it's, it's historically true, I suppose, isn't the point. Um, something that's interesting about it is that it seems like these structures in the early Roman Republic emerge or organically uh, in response to a historical event or a historical situation. Um, do you think that there's any lessons to learn uh, about sort of that organic growth? One of the great problems then and now, uh, and actually most of what I spend my working time on, <laughs> is how do you get from an uh, oppressive, unjust, corrupt state of state and society to a state and society which are not oppressive, corrupt. Uh, and, and how do you preserve um, a just society if you, there never has been a just society? But how do you make society more just? And we're struggling with that all over the world and, 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 and nations can improve and nations can decline. So in the Roman case, uh, Rome did improve. Uh, well, because they had established early this principle that government should be the public wealth for the public welfare, when magistrates uh, tried to exploit their position, 
there tended to be a strong response and new institutions would develop to control the new magistrate who now was trying to exploit their, their position. So um, throughout the history of the Roman Republic, you see new magistrates invented, you see new rules created, and the aim is always to control power. So that power, you need power, someone must have power, the state must have power to, to achieve justice. At the same time, anyone who has power uh, has a tendency to abuse it. And so you try to create structures of government that will prevent that from happening. And since every society is different, it works best if those structures are developed with a particular society in mind. So transplanting a whole set of checks and balances into a completely different society, uh, while actually it's been done many times and it's surprisingly often done pretty well, uh, doesn't work so well um, <clears throat> if you don't take the nature of the society you're entering into account. But both, I mean, the United States, our republic, our American republic is intended in many ways to be a copy of the Roman Republic. So in a sense, it is a transplant, but it's a transplant. You know, we have a Senate just like Rome had. We have a Capitol Hill just like Rome had. Uh, we, we have a republic just as Rome did. We claim to serve liberty just as Rome did. But uh, it's not identical to Rome and it wouldn't have succeeded if it, if it were. Okay, that's, that's helpful historical background. Let's turn to some more theoretical matters. Philosophically, what do you think were the origins of the Roman Republic, uh, whether it be in Greece, in Italy, wherever? Well, as you mentioned, there's an historical origin, which is an evolution of society in response to certain ideals. Um, but Rome uh, became um, the dominant power in the Mediterranean. And part of being the dominant power was was a great deal of exposure to Greece, which was a more highly developed society at that time. And particularly Plato and Aristotle, who had given a lot of thought to structures of government. So Romans were, were reading uh, Greek authors who talked about the ideals of government. And both Plato and Aristotle declared that the purpose of government was the public good, the common welfare. So when Cicero talks about the Roman Republic uh, and writes about it, he is doing so in the light of what he knew about what had been written by Plato and Aristotle. Not that he shared their views exactly, but he was looking at the Roman structures through Greek eyes to some extent. And the same thing happened in Greek. So Greek authors such as Polybius looked at Rome, looked at the enormous success of Rome and tried to figure out and explain how that happened. And the main explanation they came up with was Ro the excellency of Rome's constitution. So these institutions that developed in Rome were understood by Greeks and by Romans in the light of Greek philosophy and Greek history. Uh, so there is a strong connection between what happened in Rome and what happened in Greece. There's a historical element of republicanism, but there's a philosophical element. And I care about both, and I think we should all care about both. In other words, you, you have to build the republic on the foundations of a particular society, but the aims are universal. Every society should have these same aims, and that aim is the welfare of everybody, excluding no one, oppressing no one. And uh, our American republic uh, has had that purpose also and should 
remember that purpose more perhaps than we do. Right. Very interesting. So I think we've laid out well the historical and philosophical origins and underpinnings of the Roman Republic. So I wonder if we can turn now a little bit more to the structure and the concrete form of the Roman Republic. I'm hoping you give the listeners, just in case they don't know, just a quick overview of the form of, uh, you know, the structure of government uh, from the top to the bottom in the Roman Republic. Um, I'll, I'll give a little bit of it. I mean, it's probably more elaborate than anyone really wants to know. Um, I already mentioned the, 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 what we might call the first magistrates, the consuls. So there were two consuls annually elected, um, and they had um, considerable power. Uh, they, when, when they left the city, they acted as generals. Within the city, they were um, the, the first executive magistrates. And um, the republic begins when they, when they start having consuls. Um, then they're praetors, that's the next level down. Uh, they're essentially acting as judges. And there's, there was something called the cursus honorum. Maybe I'm starting at the top and going to the bottom. Maybe I should have started the other way around because at a certain point it was regularized and there were certain offices and you could hold those offices only when you reached a certain age and you wouldn't hold the next office until you'd held the previous office, if you see what I mean. So um, you have um, priesters, you have praetors, you have consuls, and you rise through these various offices. But talking about it in a, you know, as a sort of a constitutional structure, I guess you'd say, um, and the Romans did say this, Polybius described Rome in this way, that, that, that the consuls filled the role of the king, that they were in a sense, the monarchical element of government. Then you had the Senate, the Senate was restricted to people who came from certain old families of great dignity. Uh, it was made up of people who had he already held magistracies. And uh, it, so it was an aristocratic group and it represented in the eyes of uh, Polybius and, the, and Cicero, uh, what you might describe as the aristocratic element of the Roman constitution. And then you had popular assemblies and these are assemblies where the people gathered and voted and made decisions. And it, it's, it's actually how Rome made laws. There were several different popular assemblies and voting was highly regulated. So it wasn't one man, one vote. Uh, rich people had more votes than poor people. So it wasn't, it wasn't completely democratic. Nevertheless, uh, it was understood by the Greeks and the Romans as representing the democratic element of the constitution. So both the Greeks and the Romans saw the Republican constitution as being a balance between monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. And the idea was that this mixture would uh, control uh, the state and guide the state to be uh, more um, just. Uh, there, there are other magistrates I could mention. Um, there were censors. This is something that happened after you were consul. So after you'd been at the top, Again, two censors, and their job was to remove from the Senate or remove from office people who were corrupt. <laughs> In other words, to pur purify uh, these public offices by studying the behavior of the people who held them and made sure, making sure that they served the public good. And then there was another rare office. It's seldom, the, the less, less, um, less happily remembered perhaps by Americans, but dictator. 
And in times of extreme stress, when the Republic was under attack, uh, laws could be suspended and a particular person could be selected to wield uh, ultimate power uh, in the face of some emergency. So you might say in, in the case of a state of emergency, a dictator could be selected and this happened uh, from time to time. But it was extremely important that the dictator only serve for some very brief period and then go back uh, and stop having any political power when the crisis was averted. And uh, the Americans, uh, when we had our republic, were particularly conscious of this risk. We were very scared of military power. The dictator was a general. And uh, the way the Roman Republic fell was when these dictators started holding on to their power forever. That was the end of the Republic, because now, in effect, you have a new king. Uh, so Caesar is the first to do this. He, he called himself the perpetual dictator. And that was the end of, end of the Republic. So, so that, that was actually a legitimate office, but it was an office that was dangerous and that we Americans feared. And one of the reasons that George Washington is still such a huge hero in the United States and referred to as the father of the country is that Washington absolutely refused to hold on to his military power after the war was won and returned to his farm, like the Roman general Cincinnatus. The most famous of the Roman dictators was Cincinnatus. Like Cincinnatus, uh, Washington returned to his farm. And Americans were very, very, very conscious of that comparison. Uh, yeah, Americans will scoff at the Roman dictator, just mostly probably because of the name, but I, I think uh, Americans might react very similarly if Hannibal was bearing down on uh, Washington, D.C. Um, in times of emergency, these things frequently happen in history. But, um, oh, sorry, you want to go ahead? Well, I was just going to agree with you that our, our presidents have claimed special powers in time of emergency. Uh, I'm not sure they should, <laughs> but they do. And, um, and, it's, and it's something, you know, we know that's how the Roman Republic fell. So it's something we rightly are very scared of. Yes, definitely. And um, you were talking about the this concept of a mixed constitution. And I think for Americans, this might be a little bit um, of a confusing concept, because when we think, uh, when I, I think most Americans, if you heard about a mixed constitution, they might think, oh, it's just like the separation of powers in the United States. And it's a different concept in some ways. Um, so basically, the separation of powers is separating the the, the executive, the judiciary, and the legislative powers into different branches of government. But the, the mixed constitution is a bit different. Uh, I was hoping you could describe those differences. Well, I would say that the mixed constitution, as I just described it, which is a mixture of um, monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, is a concept that goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle talked about that as being the ideal constitution. And the separation of powers was best articulated probably by Montesquieu. At least he's the one who had the most influence on Americans. So um, the Romans did not self-consciously consider this concept of separation of powers. But both the so-called mixed constitution and the separation of powers serve the same purpose, which is the checks and balances. They're both ways of checking and balancing government so that it yields the common good. And actually, the American Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, was not written with an absolute separation of powers. There's a recent confusion uh, that you sometimes see in Supreme Court opinions reflecting basically the historical um, lack of knowledge of the people who are writing these opinions. 
implying that there was intended to be an absolute separation of powers. But if you look at our constitution, there isn't an absolute separation. Our constitution is structured so that each of these three divisions of government has the power to check the other. So you, you have a quasi um, judicial role in impeachment, for example. You have uh, the, the president signing bills, so playing a part in the legislature. So, so there's not an absolute separation of powers. There's a separation sufficient to empower the different groups to check each other. And I think that's what's important about the separation of powers in our constitution. It's the idea that you can't trust any branch of government on its own <laughs> to rule the world. They have to be able to control each other and prevent each other from uh, taking uh, too much power and authority. Um, and really the independence of judges, it's with the independence of judges that, that um, in the British legal tradition, we first start getting, really getting the rule of law. So the independence of judges is the first step towards what we call now the separation of powers. Uh, this idea that judges should serve for long terms and not be removable. Because if the, uh, if the executive can remove or if the legislature can remove judges, then they can control judges. And if they can control judges, then you're not gonna have justice. It, it, it'll be like China uh, is today or like uh, Russia is today where the executive calls up the judge and the judge does what they're told. And that's highly undesirable situation. Right, right. And, and to talk about the separation of powers in Rome, you mentioned that there were two consuls. Was that an effort at separating executive power? It was, it was a, an attempt to weaken executive power by dividing it. Uh, an analogy in the United States would be our two, the two houses in our legislature. The United States Congress is divided into two houses. And that's in part because we feared the power of the legislature. So the hope was that the Senate and the House of Representatives would control each other, would be slightly different from one another. So it's not just a separation of powers, it can be a division of power within each branch, dividing the power so that the branch will not be too powerful and will behave a little bit with a little bit more restraint. Got it. That's helpful. Uh, one thing we haven't touched on much, if at all, uh, so far has been the plebs. And the office of the Tribune of the Plebs and the development of the role of the Plebs in government in the Roman Republic. Uh, how did the role of the Plebs expand throughout Roman Republican history? Well, I think I mentioned that, it, that the um, magistrates that I described earlier were the magistracies were restricted to people from certain families in a certain background. In other words, the old families of Rome. And uh, through mergers with uh, La other Latin peoples and through conquest um, and through the admission into the citizenship of people from the surrounding area, you had a lot of people who were Roman citizens, but not eligible for these public offices. And so at a certain point, there was a really significant social division between the at that time more wealthy and privileged um, noble families who held public office and what we call the plebeian families the plebs the people who were the majority and originally at least not so prosperous 
uh, and they tended to get oppressed. The aristocrats exploited their monopoly of magistracies to oppress uh, the people, as you would expect. Whenever you give one group more power, uh, they use it to favor themselves. And that's an unfortunate reality of humanity. Even good people do that because we don't see how selfish we really are. So um, there was a growing tension between these two classes, the people who could hold office and the people who couldn't. And the plebs rose up and eventually demanded to have their own magistrates. So you, you get another magistracy, tribune. Tribune is from tribe. The plebs were organized into tribes. There were 30 tribes originally. And um, the, uh, the tribunes of the plebs came to have a veto power over the Senate. Then later, with the passage of time, um, the different the wealth difference between plebeians and nobles diminished enormously. You had these incredibly wealthy plebeians, partly because it was considered undignified for nobles to engage in trade. And so you had all these plebeian merchants who got very rich. And then there was intermarriage between the two. So later in Roman history, um, the two types of Roman were less different. And again, you have... Um, maybe the rich having extra power, but the rich included both nobles and plebs. So the tribunes of the plebs in later Rome are just another element in the constitution. They don't particularly stand up for the poor as you might have expected them to, and they were perhaps originally intended to. Uh, they they end up getting uh, seduced in a sense by, by the Senate. And it's just another vehicle for exercising power. But because they're separate, they do contribute another check another balance to the Roman system. And they could veto uh, resolutions that came out of the Senate. So that that was a very important role for the tribunes of the clubs. That's great. Thanks for laying that out. Now that we have laid out the form of Republican government in Rome and maybe even some fault lines, I think it's probably a good time to shift to maybe some of the flaws. So we left off talking about the form, the structure of the Roman Republic, and maybe set up some fault lines. Uh, the Roman Republic did not last forever, as, as probably most people know. Uh, I'm wondering what caused Rome, from a structural perspective, to fall into essentially empire. Well, that's that's a question the Romans themselves debated for a thousand years. So I probably, if I, you should beware as I give you an answer that not everyone is going to, this, this is an issue that we've been talking about ever since Rome fell, which was uh, more, more than 2000 years ago. Uh, well, that's, well, since the Republic fell, because Rome, of course, continued in a sense, perhaps continues still. But um, it was a very important question for, and is an important question for us as Americans because our Republic was founded in conscious imitation of Rome. Uh, we would not have had the courage to try to have the Republic that we have now if there hadn't been the Roman example. And yet, uh, when we established our Republic, everyone knew that the Roman Republic had failed, ultimately failed, and it failed in a very unhappy, miserable way and collapsed into empire. And then you had a thousand years, 2000 years of empire and corruption. So uh, people feared, and it was often said, that the United States would have the same fate. And a lot of the debate in the Republic was how do we change our institution? We want to copy Rome. 
but we can't be exactly like Rome because we know Rome failed. And so what was the main reason for their fall? And um, there were different theories. I think many people thought that what made Rome fail was that it acquired an empire in our modern sense of the word empire. It acquired foreign possessions. It controlled, in the end, the whole Mediterranean world. And that power uh, required, first of all, powerful generals. It required great wealth and it required powerful generals. And the wealth inspired greed and the greed inspired corruption and the generals got power and that power uh, caused them to become uh, exaggeratedly important, at least in their own minds. And so, and so many people said, well, the fall of Rome was occasioned in the first instance by the fact that they acquired an empire and that they acquired in effect a standing army. So one of the great things that Americans feared was empire and army. <laughs> and yet we had both because the United States, even at the beginning, was the whole East Coast of the American, North American continent. And that was much bigger than, than most nations in the world. And, um, and then we, we, we were a big mercantile republic. Many people felt that wealth, both wealth and empire <laughs> led to the end of, of the Roman Republic. And so we were scared. Uh, and we had to develop a new theory in our constitution, our American U.S. constitution, tried to modify some of these things that we felt had weakened Rome. I think the, 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 the three things that people most blamed were the size of the empire, the growing wealth of individuals, and the power of generals. And so all three of those were we, we tried to control in our U.S. constitution. It's, it's such a fascinating topic, um, especially from an American lens when we're thinking about our own constitution and our own government. I love the I love the uh, Gordon Wood title, Empire of Liberty, uh, because it just so perfectly encapsulates this tension in American government. We we are a continental empire. We certainly have a lot of rich people. I don't know about the powerful generals. We, we've had them in the past. Uh, so it's just something to always keep in mind. And I, I'm also interested that you talk about um, – you talk about greed, you talk about these sort of a lack of virtue. And I think that there's sort of this uh, Madisonian fetish too often where, you know, if you just tune everything right, everything will run smoothly forever and there will never be any issues. But people need to, I think a lesson of Rome is that people need to um, be virtuous and, and keep in mind political virtues for government to be successful and and persevere. Well, that, that I certainly agree with you on that point. And the founders of our republic were extremely conscious of that. They were conscious of two things. Uh, one was uh, that virtue is evanescent. <laughs> you know, you, and you, you can't have a, a republic. They said it again and again. George Washington said it. You can't have a republic without some level of virtue in the population. You just can't. Um, but he said, and Madison, you mentioned Madison, said the same. It's, it's unrealistic to imagine that human beings will ever be completely virtuous or that any republic will always have virtuous leaders. So they contemplated from the beginning the likelihood that we would have as presidents, for example, uh, corrupt people, people who are not virtuous. So the question was, how do you set up a republic where we can survive those corrupt leaders? And, um, and that's a really interesting question. Uh, I, in addition to 
to to the historical and philosophical interests that you and I have been discussing. I also work as a lawyer, and as a lawyer, I mainly advise governments that are trying to reform and improve their um, their governance. And I, I think that uh, that um, that never really works unless you have a virtuous population. How do you have a more you know the the countries where the people are corrupt, the government is corrupt. So you have to move the two, advance them together. I agree with you about the importance of virtue. And one of the things I'm studying and working on is how do you make the public more virtuous? And I think in our republic, um, television uh, and the internet have recently had, cable television and the internet have recently had a very negative influence. And uh, an earlier era of television, I think, had a positive influence. So I think it's how these big um, uh, institutions are structured has a big effect on how people think and how they understand the world. And we have to be a little bit careful and realize how susceptible people are uh, propaganda. And so, so virtue, virtue can be improved, but it can also degenerate. And I think the United States is facing a moment where we should be careful of our own virtue and perhaps a bit worried about it. Right. That's well put. And that's uh, uh, probably a whole other podcast series that someone could do. Um, that, that's well put and very helpful. So the Roman Republic collapses into, into an empire. Does the empire retain Republican elements, though? Yes. Uh, the empire never admitted the Republic was gone. So they still had a Senate. They still had magistrates. They still actually had almost all the forms of Republican government, but they were all fake. Uh, the government was really ruled by the prince or the emperor. Prince meaning princeps, the first emperor meaning the person who has imperium. So the, the, the consuls had imperium, but when you have a perpetual dictator uh, who has imperium, you know, th then they can do what they want. And that's the beginning of the concept of, of empire. But the emperors always pretended to be maintaining the republic. And again, the same thing is something we perhaps should fear in our country, where we maintain the ostensible form of republican government, but power really is concentrated somewhere else. And that would be uh, the end of our republic. Oh, that's very, very ominous. Um, it's, we have talked a lot about the United States and the legacy of the Roman Republic in the United States. I'm hoping we, we could just, as we wrap up here, broaden that out to the ways that the Roman Republic had a legacy for um, maybe modern political theorists, uh, maybe in other countries. If you could just, you know, obviously you don't have to go through the entire litany. Uh, however, if you could just give us a, a sense of, of how the Roman Republic was relevant uh later on its legacy well um political science political philosophy both really begin with rome greece and rome for good or ill and that's everywhere in the world so i've i've worked in china uh vietnam korea i've worked in african countries i've worked in south american countries many many are self-styled republics you have the People's Republic of China, you know, they're claiming to be republics. And, 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 and the use of that phrase is influenced by Rome. They have, of course, many different languages in which this is expressed. But what they're trying to express is this concept of the republic. 
And so I would say that there's nowhere in the world that wasn't influenced by Rome. And there's nowhere in the, in the world that um, isn't conscious of the Roman example. I think that perhaps today that consciousness is diminishing uh, because uh, Americans, for example, are not educated in the same way that they used to be. And that's true everywhere else. So now perhaps when people think of republics, they think first of the United States and France. We're the new example for good and ill. It's United States and France, the history of our two countries that they look at, maybe Italy, the Italian republics. Um, and Rome is perhaps something that's of, of, of which people are less aware today than they used to be. I would say up until the Second World War, Rome was the primary model, but perhaps now it's become the United States for good or ill when people think of a republic. They think of us first. But it's the same tradition, it's the same purpose, it's many of the same institutions. And, and the basic idea is simply how can we get government for the good of all people, not just for the people who have control, but for everyone. And if we want to have government for the good of all people, what structures do we need to achieve it? And that, that question doesn't go away and it's a question that's rev relevant in every single country in the world. And if the government doesn't do it, and that's the lesson of our Declaration of Independence, and, it, and that's the lesson I think of, of international law, if the government doesn't serve the purpose for which it exists, then it should be improved or replaced. And uh, so republicanism is a very powerful theory. Got it. That, that's very, very interesting. A lot to explore there. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I think we can wrap up here. Uh, just for the audience, do you have anything that you've worked on or that you're working on that you would like to make people aware of? Well, in the context of the conversation we just had, I think the thing that's most relevant is the Oxford Handbook of Republicanism which I'm editing with Frank Lovett, and which has about 30 chapters by, by all the people who know more than I do. And um, that is coming out um, 2023 from Oxford University Press. And so if you're interested in anything that we just talked about, that book will be better than any remarks I made today. Uh, so it's something to look forward to the, the Oxford Companion, Oxford Handbook, excuse me, of Republicanism. That's great. We'll be looking forward to it. Well, thank you for joining us and have a nice day. Pleasure. Nice to meet you, Joseph. Mm -hmm.